0: And I hope that you will join me with an open Bible in the book of 2 Samuel as we look together at chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. When we approach this portion of the book, we're looking at what could accurately be described as the apex of David's career. What we see is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to him all the way back in 1st Samuel chapter 16. And just consider all the dangers, toils, and snares that David has passed through before he reached this point where he is finally recognized as king, not only of one tribe of Israel, but of the whole of Israel. It's been a long time coming But it does arrive in God's good and perfect timing. And when it does, we can see something of the architecture of David's life and of this kingdom that God is establishing through him. And it shows us a stark contrast with his predecessor, Saul, and Saul's house and Saul's kingdom. Saul's dynasty didn't last. It wasn't built to last. It passed off the scene. But God is now establishing his king on the throne of his people, and he's going to do that by firmly planting him within his great city, Jerusalem. God is doing all of that. And it raises... The question for us today, is your life built to last? Each of our lives has a certain architecture. There are foundational convictions. There are beliefs and ideas that we hold dear. And of course, there are experiences in our lives who our parents were, where we're from, that have shaped that foundation. And then there's a framework out of which we operate, a framework that we use to evaluate new circumstances and change circumstances. Our lives have an architecture. There's no question about whether or not we're building. It's a question of how your life is being built and who is building your life. And through these verses, God shows us two radically different ways of building a life and two radically different ways of building a kingdom. The first is the God-built life. And the distinguishing mark of the God-built life is that it is designed to last forever. It is designed to last forever. It's designed to weather any storm, to withstand any attack of the enemy. And we can contrast it with what I'm going to call the I-built-it life. The I-built-it life is designed to last for today. It's designed to last for today. But in general, I don't think many people try to be short-sighted. We want to build a life that has meaning, that has value, that has significance, and that will last but if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that often we're like Frank Sinatra famously sang, I did it my way. I did it my way. And I can't think of a more unchristian song, by the way. Certainly not something you'd want to have sung at your funeral. I did it my way. As we read in Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless God builds your life, it ultimately will not be able to weather the storms of this life. It will not be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And ultimately, it won't last. As long as we operate out of the understanding that We built it. I did it. I did it my way. May that not be true of you, and may it not be true of me. And may God, through his word, show us the difference. How we can live with more foresight, be more careful about the architecture of our lives. So let's read together 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will be shepherd of my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So when we come to this chapter, the final obstacles in the way of David's rise to the throne have been eliminated. The rival king, Ishbosheth has been assassinated. His general, Abner, has been assassinated. And none of it was David's doing. All David had to do was wait. And God, in his own timing and in his own way, brings the throne to David. But I'm sure it felt like a lifetime ago that God had made that original promise to him when a strange prophet named Samuel showed up at his father's house. And when that prophet looked at the sons of Jesse and saw their strength and their stature and said, oh, this looks like a king. And in each case, God said, no, No, don't look at the outside. That's what people look at. Look at the heart. That's what I see. And when at last David, the youngest, is called in from the sheepfolds and the pastures and is anointed by Samuel as just a boy, it must have felt like a lifetime ago. And so, what we need to see if we are to have God built lives is we have to begin with the foundation. And the God built foundation is grounded in the grace of God, it is grounded in the foundation of God's saving grace. It's not grounded in our circumstances. And you think of all the circumstances that David has passed through before this point. And the only thing that he had to keep him going was the grace of God as expressed through that promise so long ago. The God-built life must start with the foundation of God's grace. And we have two ways in which we can see that. The first we see in David and in his stamina. To endure everything that he has endured. And to finally reach this point, having never given up on God or God's promise. Is that stamina evident in your life? Well, a season like this, when we're surrounded by so much frustration and and so many failed plans, and so much uncertainty. This is when our stamina is really tested, right? So how are you holding up? Are you still clinging to God's promises? That God is good, and that he is good to his people, and that he will build up his church? Are you clinging to those truths? Well, what we need to see is if we're to have this stamina that we see evidenced in David where he has merely to wait and the tribes come to him, the elders of Israel, those who had fought against him, those who had hated him, those who had resisted him, who wanted him dead. When they finally come, what's he doing? He's fairly passive. He just has to receive them. And so often, That's how we receive the good things of God. And that is certainly how we receive the grace of God. It comes to us. It finds us. And Aren't you grateful? But it's important for us to know that if we're to have this stamina, we need to be prepared to be in the minority sometimes. We need to be prepared for everything around us to appear as though it's running against the grain of what God has promised. And why does God do it that way? It's so that our faith might rest in God, and in the goodness of God, and the greatness of God, the virtue of God, and not in the opinions of people, or in the goodness of our circumstances. That wouldn't really be faith, would it? That wouldn't really be hope if what we really trust in were just good things or in what the majority of people thought that would never have worked for David and it will not work for you or me during these days. So we see the stamina of David. Now look at the elders of Israel as they come to him. There are three elements that bring them to David and to finally submit to him as God's chosen king. The first is that he is their flesh and blood. They're related. Yes, he's from the tribe of Judah, and yes, they've had their differences, but we're brethren after all. The second is David's success. While Saul was king, David for a time was Saul's general. And God gave his people great success through David. The third is the promise of the Lord, that you will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. What's so striking is that when you walk through that list, you realize, wait a second. All of those things were true before. These aren't new revelations. David has always been their flesh and blood. David has always proven his success on the battlefield. And apparently they have always known of God's promise to him that he was to be the shepherd of God's people. So what gives? Well, They just didn't want to acknowledge it. They knew it. They knew all these truths, but they refused to accept them. And in a similar way, we can be so immersed in Christian culture and in church culture where everyone carries a Bible around and everybody can say a prayer when they're called upon and Everyone has a Sunday school class or a small group. We can be totally immersed in that and still not really believe it. And so we have a warning here. Be aware that sin can have the effect on us of of dulling us and lowering us so that We know the truth, but we don't live the truth. And what is so vitally important, if your life is to be God-built, and if it is to start with the foundation of God's grace, you need to know this truth. Your life will only be built upon grace to the extent that you believe you need grace. And in order to realize your need for grace, you have to do something that is so hard for human beings. And that is, admit you're wrong. And it's taken all this time for the other tribes to finally acknowledge this and finally come To David's throne and submit to say, You are God's chosen king. And we have been resisting, we have been fighting the plans of God, we haven't wanted to accept it, but now we submit because there's nowhere else for us to turn. And sometimes our encounter with the grace of God is like that. We don't know where else to turn. And the way that should look in your life is that when you're reading the scriptures, You don't read them as though there's some self-help manual saying, oh, let me see what's helpful for me here. What can I profit from? No, you read this for what it is. The Word of God. The God who can alone save you by His grace. You, a sinner, fully deserving of His judgment on your sin. Your life will never be God-built Until you acknowledge God is right to condemn you as a sinner, just as he is right to condemn me as a sinner. When you acknowledge that, we're ready to build. We are ready to build. That is a sure and certain foundation. That is a rock that can weather the storms of life and that can withstand the attacks of the enemy. Well, next we go to verse 6. God has his king. Now his king needs a capital city. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off, they thought. David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel." So why does David lead this attack on Jerusalem when Jerusalem is at this time inhabited by the Jebusites? Well, one reason is political. David had been ruling from Hebron, which was in the most southern part of the nation of Israel. And by moving north into what was in the tribe of Benjamin, David is demonstrating that he's not just king of Judah, he's king of the whole nation. And some might have accused him of bias if he were to just remain in the south, as though he just favored his own people. It's similar to how people on the west coast now probably resent sometimes the capital of our nation being on the east coast. But of course, when... Washington, D.C. was founded as our capital. It was in the middle. It was intended to be equitable. Well, that's the political reason. But there's a far more important theological reason that David comes to Jerusalem. And that reason is that these Jebusites shouldn't have even been there in Israel. Their ongoing presence is an indictment against God's people. Why? Because the Jebusites are listed back in Joshua as among those, God commanded his people to drive out. And while we read that and we think, oh, that's so cruel, why would God do something so mean? We need to remember God had given these people at least 400 years to repent before he drove them out through his people. And these Jebusites are right here on this prime real estate in the promised land of God and of God's people. And so by leading this attack against the Jebusites, David is lining up his rule and his kingdom with a general like Joshua. He is continuing God's work of establishing his people firmly in the promised land, a promise that reaches all the way back to Abraham So that's the theological reason. But notice when he gets there, notice the confidence of the Jebusites. They say, David can't get in here. This place could be defended by the blind and the lame. Why are they so confident? Well, the the place where they are in Jerusalem is the oldest part of the city of Jerusalem. It's in the shape of a U surrounded by valleys on three sides. It's on this promontory. It looks impregnable. It looks impregnable. And yet, David identifies their Achilles heel. And it seems that David maneuvered an attack through their water shaft, their water supply, maybe through what we know today as the springs of Gihon. But what we need to know from this and what you need to know for your life is that the God-built life grows within the strong framework of grace. It grows within the strong framework of grace. And the strong framework of grace can be contrasted with this weak Framework that the the Jebusites were relying on. Externally, it looks impregnable. There's no taking that. But internally, they're weak. They're weak. And David penetrates that weak point and, in so doing, conquers the city and establishes Jerusalem as the city of David and as the city of the great king. And it's a contrast that we see especially in Psalm 48, whereas the Jebusites take pride in their fortifications and what you can see on the outside. The true strength of God's city lies with the presence of God. As we read in Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Real strength, real protection comes from the presence of God. As we read in verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Notice that David can't really take any credit for this victory. As we read in verse 10. And he became more and more powerful. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. This is ultimately a display of God's power. So look at the framework of of your life, the pillars that are holding up your life. Are you relying on what you've accomplished or what you haven't accomplished? Are you relying on your possessions? Are you relying on your good deeds and your morality? You're you're a good person, right? Or are you relying on God's strength? That your life is grounded on the foundation of God's grace and it grows, it develops inside of the framework that God has established, the strong framework that God has established. Well, how do you know? Two key pillars are evidenced here in these verses. Look at verse 10. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. The first pillar is personal communion with God. Personal communion with God. Do you know God? Do you spend time with God? Do you talk to God? Or not? you are to have your life built upon this foundation, the foundation of God's grace. We need grace to grow. And this is where grace grows, is in the intimacy between a holy God and his people who are in the process of being made holy, being sanctified. That's where grace works. Meet him there. The second pillar, we see it in verse 12, after this foreign king, Hiram, sends envoys to David and, and builds a palace for David, we read that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. David had known that promise before, he'd believed that, but now it is confirmed with these outward signs, and God does that sometimes. God gives us these signs. But the pillar that I want to highlight is the reason that God did it for the sake of his people, Israel. Ultimately, this is not about David and his personal ambition or his personal profit. Ultimately, this is for the people of God. God blessed and exalted David, not merely for the sake of David, but for the sake of his people. And for those of us who live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we know those people include us. So we need personal communion with God and we need a public commitment to serve God's people. So many people would say they they believe in God, maybe they even love God, but when the church doors are open, where are they? If you have known the grace of God, if your life is God-built if your life is growing inside of the framework of God's grace, it's going to be evidence and you're going to love God and you're going to love his people. You're going to love the institution that Jesus himself founded, his church. The institution about which he said the gates of hell will not prevail against this institution, against these people, in other words, we're to live on mission. If God has blessed you in some way, if, if you've experienced healing from a disease, if you've come through a surgery safe and sound, who are you going to tell about that? God doesn't just bless us so that we could just enjoy his blessings. He blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. Who are you blessing in your life right now? Is there any public commitment to serve the people of God? David knew this wasn't just about him. This was for the sake of God's people. Well, even as we see how God is establishing his king on the throne of his people in his capital city, we can see that there are some cracks in the foundation of of David's kingdom. David, as an individual believer, is kept safe by the grace of God, but his kingdom is not a permanent kingdom. It's, It's far better than Saul's. It will be more permanent than Saul's, but it's not ultimately going to last forever, at least not in this expression. Look at verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphelet. Why are we told this? The narrator is cluing us in to a danger that crops up in David's life, and that we need to be keenly aware of in our lives. So often, on the other side of a blessing, or on the other side of prosperity, we can get too cozy. David's enemies have been eliminated. He has his city. He has all the tribes of Israel. He now has a palace, so what does he do? Well, he starts to live like any other king, and in so doing, breaks God's command for his kings, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, he, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And this isn't something that just started now. This is a pattern that we see earlier in David's life, as we read in 2 Samuel 3, where we're told of six other wives that David accumulated. And some of the reason for this is political. He's making alliances. And God is is working through it. Remember, God controls all things without condoning all things. God is working through this. But we need to know about this danger of sinner lives. Once we give in to sin, and the more we continue to give in to whatever temptation we have, the more Satan uses that to lull us and to dull our hearts so that we don't even recognize the sin anymore. We just become so used to that pattern of behavior. So we need to be warned of that and we need to know the remedy. The God-built life is grateful without ceasing for the fortress of God's grace. Grateful without ceasing for the fortress of God's grace. The framework is the strength of God's grace, and then the fortress that hedges us in is gratitude. Never, ever Losing our love and our passion for God's grace. But David, sadly, was lulled into this pattern. He got cozy, got complacent, and he will pay dearly, as we will see, and his household will pay dearly for his sin. Are you grateful? Cultivate gratitude, no matter what your circumstances are. It's a fortress, it's a bulwark against discouragement and against temptation. But there's one detail that an alert reader of 2 Samuel has to notice here. If you look at verse 13, David took more concubines and wives. David took. Now that should be very familiar, maybe even eerily familiar to something we see back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the people are clamoring for a king. They want a king like the nations. They want a great warrior. And Samuel warns them, okay, you can have a king, but here's what he's going to do. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take a tenth of your flocks. Take, 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 take. As long as we operate out of I built it thinking, We will live our lives trying to take things. And we'll fall into the trap of David. But praise be to God that through David, God is setting the stage for a very different kind of king a king who came to give. A king who gives his blood and his righteousness to establish a kingdom that can never, ever be shaken. And that king is the one we know as Jesus Christ. The one who is not subject to these sins. Who is subject to the same temptations Satan tempted him too, he could have taken, he could have been this kind of king, but who by the power of the Holy Spirit resisted and lived the life we could not live and who went to the cross to make it possible for sinners like you and like me to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And what do we do with that? We remember maybe Jesus' most famous parable as recorded in Matthew 7, verse 24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and who puts them into practice, who does them, who, who builds on them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house It fell with a great crash. Notice that both of these houses, both of these builders are subjected to the same weather patterns. In the same way that in your life and my life, we're going to be subjected to the same storms. And those storms, whether they're circumstances or hardships, they will expose what you are building on. And whether your life is God built or I built it. I did it my way which is it for you and your life? I pray that you would not only hear the words of Jesus, but that you would live it and that your life would be grounded on the foundation of God's grace, his unmerited favor for sinners like you and like me, and that it would grow inside of the framework of his grace, and that you would never cease to be grateful for that grace, that you would never get over it but instead that you would be sustained by it until the day you die. Because the ultimate storm isn't anything in this life. It's the judgment seat of Christ that will expose your Achilles heel and will expose how you've built and what your life is built on. What will that day expose in your life? I pray that your hope, that your life, that your future would last forever, because it's God-built. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who has made that possible for sinners like you and like me. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for showing us the difference, the radical and stark difference between these two ways of living. And Lord, for anyone hearing this message who has yet to receive your grace who has yet to receive your forgiveness for their sins, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would receive it, that they would confess Jesus as Lord and as King of their lives. And if there is anyone hearing this message whose life is built on the grace that you have provided through Jesus, but who is stuck there and who has been lulled and dulled into a pattern of sin, Lord, wake us up. Wake us up and draw us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Build us up, Lord, as we place our hope in you and in the solid rock of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has made your grace available to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions, if you would like to connect about any ministry needs or if, if God is speaking to you somehow, please reach out by email. We pray that God would give you a wonderful and blessed week.